We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church. And as they are leaving, uh, as they are leaving, uh, this week and next week they will be preparing, uh, they will be helping us prepare crafts that we will be taking to India uh, in a couple of weeks. And so we're excited about uh, their, they're excited about their participation uh, in a very small way in what God is doing across this, uh, across this globe. If you have your Bibles, I know you guys have been anxious to get back in the book of Matthew. We've been out of the book of Matthew for a couple of weeks. Uh, we will be back in the book of Matthew today, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 uh, through 30. We're going to be looking at an unbelievable love this morning that's demonstrated by Christ. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said to them, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand, and I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, saying, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who has dipped his hand with me into the bowl is the one who will betray me. And the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. He said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, Take and eat. This is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine now until, the da- until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Lord, may we see this morning an unbelievable love. May we see an unbelievable love from the Lord with His disciples. May we see an unbelievable love that You have for us. And may we, in turn, have an unbelievable love for others. God, may You speak to our hearts through Your Word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many moms, dads, grandparents do we have here this morning? If you have kids, if you have kids, raise your hand. If you have kids, raise your hand. If you have kids, you understand, you understand the love that a parent has. If you don't have children but are hoping to have children and have ever heard your parents say, you will know what it's like to love someone whenever you have children. 
We, we, my mom, whenever we were younger, my mom would say, we'd, you know, she'd say, you don't, you don't understand how, how unbelievably much that I love you. And you never will be able to understand that until you have children yourself. And as, as a child, uh, we say, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We, we, we know what, we know what it means to love someone because I do believe that our children, as children, I do believe that we absolutely love our parents and our our siblings and our cousins and, and our family. I think we absolutely love as much as we possibly can. But as a parent, there is a, there is a deeper love than, than any that has ever been on the human level, on the human level. Uh, we've seen parents, uh, uh, and many of you as parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, you have experienced some of the, the crazy things that parents do. Parents will, will sacrifice all of their, their, their wants, their desires, their, their, their lives for their children. In fact, we live in a generation today where parents' identity is found not in necessarily their job, not in necessarily uh, what they do or, or their own social network, but their identity is found in their kids' lives. We see more parents today that are defined in that, that, that spend the majority of their time going to soccer games and baseball games and piano practice and football practice and, and all of the extracurriculars and drama and theater and, and all of the extracurriculars that their kids are involved in, so much so that their own lives have, been, have become a shadow of what they once were, of what they once were, because they have, they have immersed themselves in their children's lives. We have three children. I have a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And there was a time in my life where I didn't know that my television played anything other than the Wiggles or, or Dora or, you know, you, you, you're, and, and for those of you who have ch- small children, you understand that if I have to watch uh, Peppa Pig one more time or if I have to watch uh, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood one more time, I'm going to pull my hair out. Yet what happens the very next moment that, that the kid comes in and wants to watch the same show that they've watched 48,000 times, what do we do? We put it on. And, 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 and I, I don't know why, but, but we feel the need that we have to sit there and watch the show as well, as if, as if there's some entertainment value there. But we think we understand what an unbelievable love is. But the Scripture tells us that God loves us infinitely more than we can love another human being. And that is something that is hard for us to wrap our brains around. It just is. Well, let's, let's go to the text, and we're going we're gonna to look and see what Matthew says about this, this unbelievable love that, that Christ has. First of all, I want to point out, and, and, and let's... This, this is going to be a passage of Scripture that it is very important for us to understand the audience and the author of this, uh, of this text for us to understand the theme that Matthew is going. We understand that the book of Matthew was written by Matthew, and the book of Matthew was written to the specific audience, and that specific audience was the, to the Jews, and it was, presented to, it was written to present a very specific theme, 
And that was to present Jesus as the son of David. Y'all are all so enthusiastic about that this morning. We're going to see a little bit later on in the text this morning that we understand why Matthew wrote to the Jews to present Jesus as the son of David because there's going to be something that I'm going to point out uh, that, that hopefully you will be like, oh, that makes sense now. But I want to start out, as we get to verse 17, the scripture tells us, now it was the first day of the unleavened bread. I want to, I want to unpack the, the, the timeline for you. Matthew chapter 17 says, on the first day of the unleavened bread, uh, the feast of the unleavened bread was, was what they would uh, be referred to as Passover. There was, there was uh, this feast of the unleavened bread that was in conjunction with Passover. It was a celebration. And I want to talk to you for just a few moments about the timeline of what's taking place. Previously, the previous, this is Thursday morning. Okay, I'm going to show you how this is Thursday morning in just a few seconds. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. On Palm Sunday, he enters into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They throw palms before him. He he enters into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, a donkey that has never been ridden before. He enters into Jerusalem and goes straight to the temple. While he enters into the temple, he drives out the money changers. He overturns the tables of the money changers and drives them out, and he cleanses the temple. That is Sunday. On Monday, on Monday, Jesus spends, this is where we see Matthew 24 and 25. This is where we see Jesus teaching. He's teaching in parables. He teaches to the disciples. He teaches to the multitudes. He confronts the Pharisees. On Monday, Jesus is teaching. On Tuesday, Jesus travels to Bethany, which is uh, a few hours journey. This is a, a suburb of Jerusalem. This is in the outer parts of Judea. He travels to Bethany. On Tuesday, while he is in Bethany on Tuesday, there is whenever he is anointed uh, with oil. We have the episode where where Mary smashes the alabaster jar of perfume and and, and anoints his feet. And and we see uh, this episode where the disciples say, why didn't we uh, sell this and give to the poor? And Jesus says, she's doing what, what she should be doing for I'm here with you, but just for a little while. And so that happens on Tuesday. The Gospels give us no record of anything taking place on Wednesday. None. On Thursday, Thursday was the day of preparation because on Thursday at sundown would begin the Passover. The Passover would begin from sundown on Thursday and will until sundown on Friday. That would be the day, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That would be the day of Passover. Saturday, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, would be the Sabbath. So what's going to take place is on Thursday, the day of preparation, the disciples are going to spend all day preparing, just like we do for Thanksgiving and Christmas. They're getting everything ready. They're cooking the the, the meal. They're, They're cleaning the house. They're preparing the table. They're getting everything ready because at sundown on Thursday, The Feast of the Unleavened Bread begins. So this is where our story picks up. On Thursday night, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested. He's put before trial on Thursday night, early Friday morning, before Annas. On Friday morning, he goes before Caiaphas. Then he goes before Pilate. Then he goes before Herod. Then he goes back before Caiaphas. Thursday and Friday, we see the trial of Jesus. He is then sentenced to crucifixion on Friday. Jesus is hung on a cross 
and he is crucified on Friday. But because the Sabbath, not Passover, because the Sabbath begins on sundown on Friday, Jesus has to be taken down off the, Christ, off the cross and buried before sundown on Friday. Jesus is buried. Saturday we have no recording of events. On Sunday morning, early in the morning, the women go to the tomb and find his tomb empty. That's the timeline of events. So here we are. Here we are. Matthew chapter 17. On the first day of the unleavened bread, the day of preparation. You see it right there. On the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to him and said, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so they're asking Jesus a very logical question. Hey, where are we doing this whole Passover thing? Jesus says something very interesting. Jesus says something very interesting. He says in verse 17, verse 18, he says, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. This sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? Do you remember just a few chapters ago whenever Jesus tells his disciples, Hey, go into the city and find at a certain house, a certain colt, and a certain donkey, and untie it and bring it to me. If anybody says anything, tell them, hey, my master has need for this. That's the same connotation. Jesus is, is exhibiting his sovereignty. He is exhibiting his authority and his sovereignty and his omniscience over all things. Jesus sends the disciples. They bring back, they, they, they go and they prepare. And I want us to understand that as Jesus, as Jesus' disciples are preparing the meal, they are not setting up a table like Leonardo uh, da Vinci would have us believe. But this, this is, is, is a, an image of, of what the Passover feast would have looked like. You would have seen a table set up in a U-shape where, where you could go in the middle here and, and the servants could set the table and they could prepare and the disciples and Jesus would be, would be reclining as they ate. And so we see in the text as Jesus reclined with his disciples, that's what they're referencing. This was a common, uh, uh, this was a cultural uh, uh, aspect of the way that the Romans and the way that the Greeks would eat. This is how they ate. They, they didn't have... Uh, dining room tables where they sat around uh, you know whenever Leonardo da Vinci painted and, and he said everybody get on that side of the table so that I can so that I can take a picture that's not what took place this is probably more along the lines of what this looked like and so they had to to make preparations they had to find these tables they had to make sure that they had these cushions they had to make sure that everything was set up in addition to preparing the feast in addition, in addition to cooking the lamb, in addition to preparing the bitter herb, in addition to baking the unleavened bread, because it had to be baked. It, it, you couldn't go to the Albertsons or the Walmart and purchase uh, some unleavened bread. So they had to go to the market, they had to buy the meat, because you didn't have refrigerators, they couldn't take it out of the freezer and thaw it out. So they spent all day preparing this meal. And as they prepare this meal... As they prepare this meal, Jesus will for the very first time mention betrayal. Look at verse 21. Verse 20. Now when evening had come, so we know that Passover has begun. 
Now when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with his twelve disciples. And as they were eating, you can, you can get this, this, this image in your mind's eye. They're sitting, they're celebrating with their Lord, their Passover. This is for the Jewish people a joyful time. It's an exciting time. It's a celebratory time. This is, this is their Christmas. This is their Thanksgiving. They're getting together, and, 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 and you can imagine around the Thanksgiving table, around the, the Christmas table, there is, there is joy, there is excitement, because we are celebrating the Passover, that God in His great grace has given us deliverance from sin, that He delivered us from death, that He has made a way for, for God to, that God has made a way for, for sin and death to pass over us, that we might have life. This is what they're celebrating. And Jesus drops verse 21. He says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, his disciples have heard that he's going to be crucified. They've argued with him about it. They have, but, but time and time again, Jesus has mentioned the reality of his fate. That God the Father, from the very beginning of time, has ordained that the Son of Man may be offered up, that the Son of Man will be killed, that the Son of Man will be sacrificed, that He will become the Lamb that was slain, that the blood would be shed, that, that Jesus, He's already communicated to His disciples that this is inevitable. He does this at the transfiguration. He does this when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, Yes, and the this, this Son of the living God must suffer and must die at the hands of sinful men. And they argue with him, and, and, and he says, Get behind me, Satan. So he's told them over and over again that it's necessary that I die. But this is the first time that Jesus has mentioned betrayal. And I want you to notice the disciples' response. Verse 22. And being deeply grieved, each one began saying to him, Surely not I. And I want you to hear what the disciples are saying in this text. It's not an arrogance. They're not coming up to Jesus saying, Not me. I would never do this. But I want you to hear what they're saying because the disciples are aware. The disciples are aware that Jesus knows the heart of men. Go, go with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9, verse 4. Flip over, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9, verse 4. Actually, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm sorry, Chris. I'm going to, I'm going to set the stage for you. Jesus is, is uh, he's just cast out some demons. Uh, in verse chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Getting in a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying in a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, And fellow blasphemers, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Now we know from the context that Jesus' disciples were with him. We know throughout many other passages where Jesus is able to discern the heart and the thoughts of men. Jesus' disciples were witnesses of Jesus discerning the hearts and thoughts of men. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 21, 
Whenever the disciples make the statement, Surely not I, Lord. It is not a statement of arrogance, saying, Surely not I, Lord, I would never do that. But rather, it is a statement of apprehension. It is, it is a statement of, Oh God, I know my own wickedness. I know my own propensity to sin. I know my own weakness. And you, as Lord of all, know my weakness even much more clearly than I know. Surely, surely it is not I, Lord, is it? That's the statement there in Matthew chapter 21. The disciples were aware of their own hearts, and Jesus was even more keenly aware of their heart. And so I want to ask a question to us this morning, church. Are we honest with ourselves? Do we know our own weaknesses? And if were we there in the upper room with Jesus, and He said, one of us will betray Him, would we say in arrogance, surely not I, or would we be keenly aware of our own sinful state and ask with apprehension, is it, is it I? Is my heart deceitfully wicked beyond all things? Is my heart prone to wander? Is my whole heart prone to leave the God I love? Is my heart prone to betray the Christ that has given His life for me? If I'm honest, I say yes. What's interesting it's every one of the disciples there who made the statement, is that I, Lord, would leave Jesus, would abandon Jesus, with the exception of John, who was hiding behind Jesus' mother. They all knew their hearts. We have a tendency to to throw Judas under the bus and, and, and there, is, there is right condemnation for Judas as we'll see in just a few moments. But let us not forget Peter denies Christ. All of the other disciples scatter, leave him for dead. None of them are there to support him. None of them are there standing beside him whenever he is hanging on the cross. It did grieve the disciples to know that they could be the betrayer. I want us to look at verse 23. Let's look at verse 23. Because in verse 23, there's much that's been made about this passage, but I believe there's enough ambiguity there to indict all of the apostles. In verse 23, He answered and said to them, It is He who dips His hand with Me in the bowl... He is the one who will betray me. Throughout the night, these disciples are sharing a meal together. There's one bowl of, of, of wine or one bowl of, 
of, of juice or whatever it is, they're, they're dipping the unleavened bread. And so throughout the night, they would all be dipping their hand with the bread in the same bowl. And so was Jesus making a specific statement that's saying, it is the one who is dipping his hand at this very moment in the, blood, in the bowl with me? Or is Jesus making a statement of ambiguity saying, it is one of you who dips his hands with me, one of you who is sitting around this table, one of you who has been my closest friend, one of you who has walked with me, one of you who has, has, has seen God perform miracle after miracle after miracle, one of you who has walked with me have seen me feed the thousands, have seen me heal the sick, have seen me heal the lame, have seen me open the eyes of the blind. It is one of you who will betray me. And in our own lives, have we not seen God do miraculous things, yet time and time again, whenever given the opportunity, we turn our back on Christ? You know what's interesting? <clears throat> throughout, throughout the nation today, in every worship service, just about, there's going to be someone that stands up and prays this prayer. God, I thank you that we are free to worship. But rarely will someone stand up and pray, God, I thank you that in this country, in this nation, we are free to share our faith. Because when given the opportunity to stand up for Christ, we, like the disciples, will scatter. So we get to this passage. <clears throat> Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And then he goes into the Lord's Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave his disciples to take and eat. This is my body. He took the cups to take. This is the cup of the new covenant. My blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. But what is missing? In Matthew's gospel, there's, some, there's a glaring omission. There's something that's not here. It's in Luke's gospel. It's in John's gospel. It's not here in Matthew's gospel. What else took place on that Thursday night? What else took place on that, that Thursday before they head out to the garden, before there is, there is the arrest, the betrayal, the arrest, the trial? What else takes place? On that Thursday night, we see Jesus taking off His outer garments, filling a basin with water, girding about His waist a towel, and he kneels down and he washes the feet of the disciples. However, Matthew's gospel omits it. You ever notice that? Why? Why does Matthew's gospel omit the foot washing of Jesus? Was it because Matthew didn't think that it was important? I don't believe. I believe the foot washing of Matthew is omitting, the foot washing of, of the disciples is omitting in Matthew's gospel for the same reason that in Matthew's gospel we see Jesus visited not by shepherds but by magi. For the same reason that in Matthew's gospel he's not offered praise and worship by a bunch of peasants, but he's offered gifts of gold, of incense, and myrrh. Because in Matthew's gospel Jesus is to be portrayed and Jesus is to be presented to the Jewish people as the Messiah, as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords, as the anointed one of God. And 
for Matthew's audience to portray a Savior, to portray a King in the role of a servant would do his audience a disservice. It's not that Jesus wasn't a King who was a servant, but Matthew's presenting Jesus in a very particular light as the fulfillment of the Israelite prophecy, of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that this is God's anointed one. And as he does so, he he omits the washing of the feet. But I want us to understand that the accounts of the last moments of Jesus' life would portray Jesus as sovereign, as omniscient, as completely obedient and kingly. I want us to go back to verse 21. Jesus tells His disciples, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. In that statement, Jesus acknowledges that I am not being betrayed I'm not being turned over to Pilate. I'm not being turned over to to Caiaphas or Annas unwittingly. I'm not being tricked. I'm not being deceived. That that this wasn't something that somebody went behind Jesus' back that he didn't know about and he walks into a trap. Jesus is keenly aware of what's going on. And he willingly walks into He willingly goes to the cross. He willingly places himself before Pilate, before Caiaphas, before Annas, before Herod. Why? Because he's God. John chapter 10. Flip over to John chapter 10. I want us to see the author John illustrate this. As he watched it with his own eyes, as he watched the sovereignty of God, as he watched the omniscience of God, as he watched the providence of God, In the incarnate Christ, notice what he says in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I received from the Father. Jesus isn't tricked by Judas. He's not not snookered by by the, the disciples. He is not... He's not walking into a trap. But it tells us in John that he knew exactly what was going on. He knew the hearts of the disciples. He knew they would scatter. He knew Peter would betray him. He knew Judas would would betray him. And he walked into the the, the crucifixion willingly. Why? Because he has an unbelievable love for us. Because he has an unbelievable love for Judas, for Peter, for John, for you, and for me. A love that is unfathomable. As he hangs on the cross, and they've beaten him to a bloody pulp, and they've pulled out his beard, and they've spat upon him. They've driven nails through his wrists and through his feet. He utters with what little strength he has, Father, forgive them. 
the ones that are spitting upon me, the ones that are hurling insults, the ones that are, that are, that are beating me, forgive them. The ones that are killing me, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is an unbelievable love. Father, forgive Peter who has just denied me three times. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive my apostles who have scattered like roaches when you turn out the light. Forgive them. Because he has an unbelievable love. If we were to look in John's Gospel, we were to look in, in Luke's Gospel at the washing of the feet of the disciples. He washes their feet, even Judas's, knowing full well what was going to happen. Knowing that in just a few hours that Judas was going to hand him over to the high priest for 30 pieces of silver. And he washes his feet. He sits with these men who he knows in just a few hours they're going to abandon him. And he gives them the Last Supper. He shares the most intimate of relationships. The sharing a meal of table fellowship in that culture was the most intimate of relationships. And Jesus shares it with these men who are going to leave him. The account of Jesus' last moment will portray Jesus as sovereign, as omniscient, as completely obedient, but also unbelievably loving, caring, compassionate. Church, I want to submit something to us that even here in the Last Supper, we see Jesus' compassion for His disciples. We see His love. And we are compelled to love like that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love because He first loved us. The way and the reason that we are able to love, the reason you're able to love your children, the reason you're able to love your family, the reason you're able to love others, the reason you're able to love those who are, who are hateful to you and those who persecute you and those who are your enemies is only because He first loved you. Jesus says this in the book of John chapter 13. He says, They will know that you are My disciples when you have love for one another. They will know you're my disciples, not whenever you can quote the Bible passage and verse, not whenever you can, you can recite and, and, and you, can, you can give this long exposition of the biblical text, not whenever you can, you can quote doctrine and theology, not whenever you can have an argument with an atheist and convince him that he's wrong. They will know that you're my disciples, not when you go to church every Sunday, not when you give such amount in the offering, not whenever you go on a mission trip, not whenever you teach Sunday school or teach vacation Bible school. He says you will know, they will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. And I believe as the church in America... We have become comfortable in our Christianity. We've become comfortable in our religion. And we have stopped loving others. And we have been content to keep aquariums. And we have stopped fishing for men. We would rather our church services be filled with people that are like us 
because it's hard to love people that are not like us. You will know you're my disciples when we love one another. I was really convicted this past week. I listened to Dr. Nick Ripkin. I'm going to close here in just a few seconds. I was listening to Dr. Nick Ripkin talk, and he was asking this question. He said, how many of you have demonstrated love to the Muslims in our community? He said, many Muslims have been in our cities and in our communities 10, 20, 30 years. And not once have they been told by an American, we're glad you're here. Not once have they been spoken to kindly. Not once have they been invited over for a cup of coffee or a meal. Not once. He said, however, when I go into a predominantly Muslim country, he said, within a week, I'm oftentimes invited into their home. I'm oftentimes invited over for tea or for coffee. They'll treat me to meals out. And this is a culture that abhors Americans and hates Christianity. And we as Christians, are supposed to have the love of Christ. Supposed to share the love of Jesus who loves His enemies and prays for those who persecute Him. I was convicted. Because I know when I see a Muslim in the grocery store, I know what thoughts go through my mind. I know my weaknesses. And I was convicted. Jesus has an unbelievable love for us. And He's called us to have an unbelievable love for others. Let's pray. God, may You speak to our hearts. There are those of us here. There are those of us here who have never experienced the unbelievable love of Jesus. They have tried to be good enough. They have tried to garner the favor of God by keeping the law. They've tried to garner the favor of God by going to church and being religious. And for the very first time, they realize that there's nothing that they can do, that you love them, not because of what they've done, but because of who Jesus is. Lord, if there are those here this morning who've never trusted Jesus for their salvation, may today be the day where they give their life to Christ. There are those out there this, Lord, Lord, this morning, Lord, who, who've experienced the love of Christ, yet because of their own selfish pride, because of my own selfish pride, where we failed to love others. Lord, may we be convicted this morning of our failure to love others. And may we be spurred on to obedience by your Holy Spirit. In just a few moments, we're going to share the Lord's Supper. 
And the scripture is very plain and very clear that we should not partake in the Lord's Supper if we have unreconciled relationship with God or if we have an unreconciled relationship with another brother or sister in Christ. So during this invitation, if you need to reconcile, if you need to come down to this altar and repent, ask God for forgiveness, may you do so that you may be able to partake in the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. God, may this morning, during this hymn of invitation, may you find us obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and worship with us?